Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to Sandbox Stories. This is an interview with Dr. Jim Walker. Dr. Walker, welcome to Sandbox Stories. Thanks, Matt. Good to see you. Good to see you. We were classmates at ICO, uh, 91 graduation year. I remember you being a St. Louis guy. You uh, you were a Blues fan, if I remember. You're still a hockey fan? Oh, yeah, yeah. Still a hockey fan. Finally got, uh, got the uh, Holy Grail. Last uh, year before last, so finally uh, won the cup. So it was a big, uh, big thing for San Luis Obispo to say. For a lifetime, plus man, years, I think. That's everything. Oh yeah, no, it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> so how are things up in Wisconsin? Uh, good. We don't have our NHL team uh, anytime soon, but you know we've got the Packers, and uh, that that matters. So hopefully by the time this is oh, yeah. published, uh, the Packers will will have another trophy, but we'll see. Hey, what got you interested you in geometry? Like what or who? Um, it's a good question. I get, you know, like we all do, we get asked that. I, you know, I think when I was in uh, undergrad, I was pre-med, like most optometry students probably were. Um, and I, you know, I, I kind of looked at other options. I wasn't sure if that was the direction I wanted to go. I actually uh, took a pause and looked uh, looked going to the law school. I went over to the law school and talked to some folks over there. Just kind of reset, figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, optometry popped up, and I started looking into that. And uh, it just seemed to fit well with what uh, you know my goals were, and um, applied to a few schools, and ended up at ICO. So it wasn't like you had some OD that had been you know correcting your minus five since you were a kid. You you literally like balanced professions. Yeah, no, I mean I I, I don't know that even had an eye exam prior to that because I'm uh, basically on a tropic until <laughs> six eight years ago, but. Um, yeah, so it was uh, not, no, nothing like that. No, no mentor, no, no eye doctor that I used to see anything like that. So that's super interesting, interesting story. So I've interviewed a ton of ODs for Sandbox Stories, and it seems like there's a pretty high percentage of those that I've talked to that have done a residency, as did you. Was that a good decision in hindsight? Yeah, I mean, I, I recommend that to anybody. I think uh, that was a, a year well spent. Um, you know, you go through school and you, you're building up debt and you, you want to get out and start earning a living and, and start paying off your debt. But uh, that year, uh, as you know, most residents don't really make much of an income. But from an educational standpoint, it really made a, uh, uh, a solid impact on, on me, my career. I don't know that I'd be where I am if I, if I didn't do that residency because it, it opened some doors for me um, and gave me the opportunity that I had. So and plus, it, it just gets you. Uh, you know, you, you see just about everything and anything in a VA medical residency like that. So we, you know, there wasn't really anything that was, uh, by the time you got out of it, you weren't really surprised with just about anything that came through your door. Do you think of the residencies as maybe a, a new norm in the profession or maybe should it someday be an expectation? Yeah, it, you know, there, I think so. I mean, if you, if you want to go into the full scope medical model and practice that way, um, it, it's, I don't know that it's a requirement, but I think it really uh, it gives you an edge coming out of school, that one year of intense training. 
um, is, is, you know, there's a lot of things that we see in private practice, but when you're in that setting like that, uh, you're seeing stage three, stage four, various diseases that you typically don't see out in the, in the um, uh, private setting uh, for a variety of reasons, but at least it, it kind of level sets you a little bit and gets you used to uh, what, uh, what you need to do from a practitioner's, practitioner's standpoint. That's great. So we're going to talk about optometry plenty. Is there any really interesting story about a parent or a sibling or any of your kids that are uh, occupying your life right now? Uh, no, I mean, the, the, the kids have been home since, uh, you know, right before things. We got two college age. Uh, the oldest is, uh, she's done. She, she's out in the real world now, but the, uh, we've got 21 year old twins and, uh, you know, they've been home since, uh, November second week in November and they go back uh, Saturday. So they're anxious to get back. Um, they're hopeful too that they can get back to some normal semblance of uh, college life and you know hopefully over the, start to get over the hump here in this semester hopefully by uh, the fall things will be somewhat normal again. Yeah. So when you got out of your residency how did you get into private practice? What was that like? Did you know somebody or did you do a search? Uh, you know, it was, uh, we were up in Chicago, and I was planning on going back to St. Louis, and there was a, um, uh, there was a uh, group out in Colorado, in Denver, actually, called John Gay and Associates, that was a practice consulting group, and they actually came to ICO, and um, they you know, met with one of the guys and sat down, where are you from, and told him St. Louis, and he goes, oh, we just, we just were uh, out in St. Louis working with a doctor, Dr. Larry Jalen, and he and his wife went out in Louisville, uh, out in West St. Louis County, uh, great practice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I picked up the phone, I think about a day later, called Larry, set up a lunch uh, right around Christmas time when I was home and um, good, uh, good lunch, we had a great talk, we hit it off and uh, he called me back about two weeks later and offered me a job when I got out of my residency. So, wow. um, so it, was, it, was, uh, it, was, it was pretty interesting how it all kind of came together. Do you, do you give him credit for being a forward thinker at that point in time? Because we see practice transitions sometimes be a little more difficult than that. Was that somebody who was being a forward thinker or did your opportunity just kind of fall in his lap? No, no, I mean, Larry was very, very entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial uh, very forward thinking. Um, so it really, it was, it, was, it was really kind of fun because it, it, it was an aspect of, uh, of our optometry business that we weren't taught in school. So you, you don't get that entrepreneurial education, that business education like so many folks did, but he, Really just had a knack uh, for for that, and just really wanted to see uh, the business grow and expand. And so it was it was fun to to, to just be a sponge and, and learn as much as I could from him. Now you guys grew that practice, and then it becomes part of a bigger story and what your role is today. How did you grow it? Uh, mostly by uh, just the novels. So we we would just we just grew, grew, uh, identified locations throughout the St. Louis market. Um, and, and would uh, find a, an area that was poised for growth or in the middle of growth, and we'd see a, an opportunity, and you know we'd find a spot, we'd build it out, and uh, you know uh, hire a doc, and away we went. So it, it was it was it was a uh, you know very orchestrated method method uh, the mythology of how we did it was was well thought out, and, and uh, you know we we were fortunate enough to be successful in, in that. Uh, practice plan. So tell me about what your title is today and what your company is doing today. So so our uh, initial company, Clarkson Eye Care in St. Louis, was purchased by private equity back in um, uh, what was it, March of 2015. 
by a group uh, out of California called FFL Partners. And they wanted to use us as a platform um, to, to expand and grow the, the full scope medical model outside of St. Louis and other geographies and, and build a, uh, a model. And uh, so we did, you know, we, we developed our own software back um, in the early 2000s on the patient management side. We coupled that with our EMR in um, around 2010, 2011. And that was one of the things that I think really attracted them to our group because we had this this uh, uh, optometry piece with the software, we had all kinds of data, and it was it was something that uh, they looked at and said, well, this is something we could build off of. And we also were, were vertically integrated with an ophthalmology group in St. Louis, ophthalmology consultants led by Dr. Gojira. Um, so we we had Joe's practice coming into several of our locations. Their, their docs would come in a couple of days a month and do some heart and harvest some procedural care in the offices. As, as well as, um, you know, we would refer cataract secondary procedural care to them. Uh, we did the same with retina as well. So um, I think that that model that, that we had started to develop uh, was attractive to them. And so uh, we've morphed now into, um, we were, uh, we've morphed now into 18 states. We've got about 420 optometric locations in there, but probably close to 100 ophthalmology partners as well. Uh, congrats. And your specific role is what? My uh, chief professional officer, officer is my title. Do you end up working with the so, docs more often than not? Is is that? Yeah, yeah. So it's just it's yeah, it's working with the docs. Um, I, I do a lot on the M and A side as well. You know, we we continue to grow. Um, it's great to get out and meet prospective docs that are looking to partner with us and and just tell the story and and you know what we can do and what we offer those guys. Well, I mean, obviously, this, this institutional investor has helped you grow the business big in a big way. What have you learned about the business expectations of such investors? It's, it is interesting. And it's like drinking through a fire hose over the past three or four years, because, you know, I think if somebody mentioned private equity to us, you know, eight, 10 years ago, you kind of scratch your head and wonder, you know, hey, what does that mean? And how does that fit with, with our world? Um, but, you know, the private equity folks, no matter what kind of business they're looking at, they, they want to help grow the business, uh, both intrinsically, um, in, in what you've got today, they want to grow that piece and they want to expand and build and, and grow on that side of uh, the equation as well. But the, the gist is they want to help any business that they get they invest in grow the bottom line and, and grow the top line and grow the bottom line. And if, if it's, uh, you know, driving more patients into the office, expanding procedural care, uh, more offerings for the patients as far as care, um, whatever it may be. So it's, that's, that's the... I talked to a lot. Uh, yeah, I talked to a lot of ODs about not trying to, you know, cut expenses to grow. That they have to invest to grow. I'm guessing that there's probably great cost controls in an institution like yours, but it is about mm -hmm. investing in, as you said, adding patients and whatnot. Do you have real sharp razor-edged uh, cost mm -hmm. controls, or when somebody comes into your network, does it feel like, yeah, we're just, you know, we're centralizing? frames or we're choosing contact lenses from a common supplier is it sort of straightforward cost management yeah i mean i i wouldn't say it's a, it's a rage, razor edge you know cost control i think um, it's responsible i think that's the right word to use um but you know we, we've got a you know with the number of practices that we've had we've got some good buying power needless to say on, on our, our cost of goods with contact lenses and frames and lenses and things of that nature so you know that's one of the, the things that we can uh, we could bring to the table for a prospective practice. But 
Um, no, I, I, you know, we're looking to grow the practice. If, if docs want to expand into dry eye care or, or uh, add equipment from a glaucoma perspective, whatever it may be, we're looking to, to help grow that practice and expand the, the scope of practice for uh, docs that we bring into the fold. You talked about EHR being a big piece of infrastructure and actually having a consistent platform helped uh, when you got started with your, your, uh, your investment firm. Is there another key infrastructure thing that happens to work for a large network of practices that is applicable to the single doc that you could share with the group? It, it's hard to say. I mean, we, we kind of cut our teeth on this software, and for us, it was just it was just who we were. Um, we developed a, a call center at some point, probably in the early 2000s, too, and that was really a, a game changer, too, because, you know, as a practitioner, you're in your office and you know your staff and you know, you know, when a patient calls, you know how your front desk is going to handle it. So there was some angst, needless to say, when this concept, uh, we started talking about this concept. But the beauty of it is, is once that call center understands, um, you know, how to answer the phones and how to take the calls and, um, you know, refer the right patients to the practice that need to be referred that day, um, it takes so much pressure off the office. And so, you know, when I'm coming out, uh, with a patient and I've got to hand it off to an optician or a technician for, you know, secondary testing or, or pair of glasses or contact lenses, wherever it may be, there's always somebody there. Whereas in the past, when we, you know, uh, didn't have the, the call center, you come out and you got two on the phone up front, two patients standing to check in, everybody's busy out there, I've got, my rooms are full in the back and we're trying to figure out what do I'm going to do with this patient because everybody's busy. And so, well, we, we guesstimate that it probably takes about 75% of the calls off of the, 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 the offices and they handle those at the uh, call center. So it really does help. It takes some of the pressure off the offices and then we can focus more on patient care and helping those patients that are actually in our office. And you've set up a system, I'm sure, with either a recruitment system or something else for staffing itself. When you buy a practice in Kansas City or whatever the case may be, you help that practice now develop its staffing, and you also probably have protocols of consistency of training. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's funny because you, you buy a practice, and docs are always afraid that their staff's all going to, you know, what are you going to do with my staff? And you know, I, I, I sometimes jokingly say, well, we don't have a, a closet full of opticians ready to deploy in Kansas City. Where you know, if you've got good staff, we want to keep your staff because you know we're we're looking for great people all the time too. And so if you've got those folks, you know, we want to keep. You know, we want to maintain the staff that you got because that's what, frankly, that's what's made the practice as good as it is. What is a key driver or metric that an independent business owner needs to be thinking about to have an opportunity to become part of what's going on with companies like yours in you know, getting new ideas, being a candidate? Do you have key metrics that uh, are just kind of standard? No, I think you know one of the things that we want to make sure that the docs are practicing in a full scope manner. I mean, that's a real, it's real important to us because we, that's where that's how we developed our practice, and you know, again, we vertically integrated with our ophthalmology partners. And if if that's in place, that's the first big step. And we just want to make sure that they're practicing full scope optometry. And um, it's just that that's kind of the the first box that has to be checked. Do you still see patients as a matter of demonstrating? Um, you know, that you're in it with the other docs, or is it just too much work for a, an optometrist who's at the, you know, sort of at the pilot seat of, of a business like this to stay involved in patient care? 
No, I, I still do. Um, not obviously as frequently as I used to, but I, I still enjoy it. Um, you know, I, I'll go in uh, typically on Mondays is my day. It's not every Monday now, but when I when I can, it's uh, try to get in at least a couple times a month and get a full day. Needless to say, but it's it's fun. I still enjoy it. It keeps me on the edge, and uh, you know, you're you're uh, there's always challenges. There's always stuff going on, and um, but I, I think it's important for, from where I sit as well, just. Because I want to stay in the game, and it, it helps me stay in the game. It helps me with new technologies, um, new contact lenses that come out. So I'm able to keep my feet wet in all those things. You and I have a common trait in that. I also backed my business down when I couldn't handle it and was running another business. My clinical business, I backed down. And there may be a learning you got that I never learned, never understood, but there's a lot of patients that want to see Dr. Walker. How do you manage that? There are people listening to this podcast who are saying, hey, I do that. You know, all the patients want to see me, but I'm not there as much. Was there any magic you have that you can advise others on how to properly deflect those wants, uh, those fans of yours to the other doctors? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it still does. I mean, it, it, there's folks, you know, that you've seen, you know, I've been doing this almost 30 years. So you, you develop relationships, needless to say, and you see, you see the kids of the folks that you used to see, and now you see their kids now, and it just means we're all getting older too. But um, it, it's not easy because you, you can't see everybody because I'm not in there as much. And um, but you know, I, I still, like I said, I still enjoy it. I, I'm fortunate enough to be uh, some of the my colleagues that work in the same office are fantastic docs. So when I'm not there, I know they're in great hands. And so that that part of it, it's easier than than you might think, just because we got some great uh, I got some great associates. So give me a little bit of a thought to the undertow of conversation. It's not loud. It's not big in our industry about the threat that consolidation of practices brings, that the doctors might not be as motivated to be parts of the associations, or they might not be willing to go to the Capitol for a legislative battle, or um, they, you know, something like that. Could you... Could you defend the, 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 the organizations like yours that do this and, and say, you know, how do you advise the docs since you are the chief professional officer? I'm sure you you motivate them to stay involved. But what what you know, what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we still stay very uh, heavily involved politically. Um, you know, some of our practices, we've got several uh, former presidents of the AOA that are part of our group. Um, and they're, they're advocates for us. They're advocates for all of optometry, frankly. And so. Uh, and it's very important. And, you know, we, we're on calls uh, weekly um, with uh, our group, that's our advocacy group, um, with uh, just discussing the latest FTC ruling with regard to the prescription release of contact lenses. And so we've been pushing real hard. You may be familiar with the Bozeman bill. It, it got stalled. But, you know, we've been helping uh, push that along as well. Uh, we've had probably two dozen uh, phone calls with congressmen, uh, doctors within our practice talking to their local congressman about the Bozeman Bill, educating them and trying to, to gain support there too. So, you know, from where we sit, um, you know, it's obviously the political side of optometry is very important. It's not going away. Um, there's always going to be the next something that's out there that, you know, unfortunately is going to try and push push down what we do or critique what we do, especially with some of the big boxes trying to, um, you know, um, kind of bully their way in sometimes. But, it, it is what it is, but, you know, I, I think, uh, again, from where we sit, it, we find it very important. Are you a great place for new or recent graduates to show up and, and have opportunities to work, um, or do you sense that that's not where they want to be? Um, 
I'm not sure how they see it. Maybe you are closer to that than I am. Yeah, no, we we we, we actually hire quite a few uh, new graduates, and um, no, we you know um, again, just like I mentioned, staff are always looking for great docs too. So if it if it's somebody that's been out and seasoned a little bit, that's been out a couple few years or more, that's great. Um, but there's you know at some point you and I came out of school and we needed to work somewhere, right? So um, and I was fortunate enough to, to land in a good spot. So I, you know we we like to think we we provide a good environment, we have you know, great staff, and um, you know we have all the tools and the toys to, to practice full scope optometry. So we like to think it's a nice place from going on. Last question on this topic. What do you think by the year 2025 or 2030 as, as the practices that are desirable by private equity are bought, what do you think the percentage of independent OD practices will be? Is it 80%? Is it 50%? Where, where, where is it going to land? You know, it's hard to say, you know, interestingly, uh, uh, one of my colleagues here in his former life, he was a, an executive with a dental roll-up company. And, um, you know, he, he tells the story that, you know, they've been rolling up dental practices for almost 20 years now, and they've only done about 15 to 18% of the private practices. So if you compare, you know, what we're doing, the optometry consolidation compared to the dental side, you know, you might be at 75, 80%. It's, it's hard to say. Um, I think the last statistic I had seen was a, about uh, 9% of optometry practices and about 6% of ophthalmology practices. That was maybe six months ago, so it maybe changed a little bit by now, but that was one of the recent statistics I've seen. So there's still a lot of independent providers that are still out there. And just to clarify, that's 9% you said of optometry practices. Yeah, it, it's, it's, in that part, it's in that ballpark, 8 or 9%, but again, it was six months ago, and from it seems to pass this, the sanity check. Um, all right, let's, let's yeah. talk about one other thing that I think you could be an expert on that I'm not sure I could get somebody else to explain as well as you could. Vertical integration is a phrase that's used a lot in optometry today, and it sounds like it's a great opportunity for a business owner to become part of a vertically integrated system. But of course, there are complexities to that because the independent doc that might be just out there on their own isn't necessarily going to understand what it means and how it works. Could you give an example of how you understand vertical integration to work? Yeah, so, so if, you, if you look at our, our Clarkson piece back you know, 10, 15 years ago, is, is when we started to partner with our ophthalmology uh, partners back in St. Louis, we were in separate ownerships, but we... we we had that, you know, we had a relationship with them where, like I said, they'd come into our offices. And we just wanted to make it kind of a one-stop shop for the patients and, and get that experience all within the Clarkson location. So you can come in for glasses, contacts, and if you've got a retinal issue, we can, we've got retina, retina doctors on staff. If, if you come in, you need your cataracts taken care of, we've got that. So it was that ease, ease of uh, referral, uh, you know, we co-manage with our, our partners. Um, and, and again, it was easy for us to say, hey, this is our partner, and the patients didn't really have to go anywhere else if they didn't need to. So, so you know, we look to, we don't have that in every market, but that's our goal is where we've got a dense optometric network to find great ophthalmology partners and do the same. And, um, and there's no, there's no, um, uh, nobody says this is who you have to refer to. Um, but I think if in our world, if, if we provide a, a world class surgeon who has great results, who's speaks uh, well to the patient, who communicates well, and then co-manages and, and uh, gets the patient back to the doc and, and takes good care of them. I think at least give them a shot. I think they'll be, they'll be happy. And that, that's all we ask. And so, you know, we've been fortunate enough to partner with some, some great 
uh, great surgeons, and so the, the model's working, and we've expanded here, and even in the St. Louis market, it's expanded quite a bit. How about on the product side? Do you provide that same kind of continuity of, of uh, do, you, do you have such a relationship with optical labs that you can just drop ship the frame, or you don't even have to drop ship the frame, you got frame companies sending the frame in, so you have product or uh, integration as well? Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, we, again, it's there's no handcuffs on the docks. They can practice and fit from a contact lens perspective, whatever they want to fit. Um, we don't tell them what to fit or how to fit it. It's just um, you know, we we hope to be able to offer just about anything they want. And, you know, you acquire a practice, and they may be using a different spiral type lens than what we traditionally use, and that's okay. And so, I mean, if if it's account we have not opened yet, we figure out a way to open the account so those docks can continue to practice in the way they practice. And so. But yeah, you know, we try and uh, just like everybody else, have a, a variety of uh, frame options and lens options and things like that. And, um, so it's it's giving patients choices, obviously. Uh, one other thing about optometry, you know, just from a practice of optometry perspective, in the 30 years we've been in practice, things have changed a good bit. But I talked to a doc this morning who graduated in the 60s who, you know, didn't get taught a slit lamp in school. So it's changed a good bit. Do you see anything really substantial coming down the line for us as ODs that maybe you have any insights on that the others don't? I'm guessing around, you know, dry eye therapies and, and other things. There maybe you know of anything that that might be really inspiring. That you've heard? Yeah, the dry eye therapies. There's obviously you know two three years ago there was one or two things, and now there's probably eight or ten different things that we could do for for my foaming gland dysfunction, etc. So. I think that's that's pretty innovative. Um, I, you know, to answer your question, though, no, I think the, the imaging technology obviously is is improved tremendously. You know, we we grew up with just a central. I think it was a Polaroid when we were in school, so that tells you how far we've come in, in that realm. So uh, there's there's no magic wand or anything that I've heard you know, or anything like that coming down the pipe uh, from an equipment standpoint. But I think everything that we're doing now is just getting better and better from the no fiber analysis and. Um, like say retinal imaging, etc. So it's it's uh, it's fun. There's no needless to say. There's something new and exciting, innovative any point, coming down the pipe. Any points of view that you have about telehealth and what optometry is particularly suited to do through telehealth, as opposed to what isn't necessarily suitable? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting because through when you know when we had to kind of unwind our practices through COVID for you know six to eight weeks. You know, we, we launched our, you know, kind of revamped our telehealth, and um, and it, it was it was interesting, and we, we did maybe 50% or so of our encounters were that way because we were able to. Um, but you know, any any type of vision loss, any flashes and floaters, uh, any eye pain, things like that, those are those are live visits, and so um, you know, if if it's an if, Word to conjunctivitis, things that are relatively simple to diagnose via telehealth call, that's fine. But you know, as we came back to, um, you know, we still offer telehealth, but as we came back uh, online again, um, you know, towards the end of May, the health telehealth numbers just continued to drop because I think people in our profession, for whatever reason, want to come in and see the doc, and so we still do a handful of them uh, each month, but it's not, it's it, it, the, you know, the level of Usage did not maintain the same level, and we, we thought it might just with with all that's going on in the pandemic that people might not want to come into the office. But I, conversely, I think at that point people were looking for reasons to get out of their house okay. because they couldn't keep up so long. So 
So anyway, I, I, I think it's always going to be around, but I think we, we're kind of a unique profession where there's, again, the three things I mentioned, if any of those things go on, you really need to see the patient. And so, you know, there could be things with regard to diabetic screenings and things like that where, you know, internists and or retinologists can look at, uh, if, if there's an imaging technique that can be done uh, telehealth-wise to, to help screen for diabetes and even glaucoma and optic nerve evaluations, things like that. You know, maybe those things will tend to advance or start to advance, but um, it, it's probably going to be more of a slow-moving trend would be my guess. I'm really interested as to whether or not patient self-imaging of anterior segment conditions would give both patient and doctor a chance to sort of triage some things. I mean, you think about the subconjunctival hemorrhages, and I don't want to underestimate the importance of people being seen in the chair, right? The, as you said, the patients want it. But the doctors also, most of the time, demand it, and for good reason. But it'll be interesting to see for some of the um, initial care of some of those minor issues or for follow-on care uh, for somebody who's treated for episcleritis or something. If there'll be a niche of, of patients that'll be able to be taken care of that way and save everybody's time and money and um, let us stay connected to our patients. Well, I mean, I can't uh, be prouder prouder than I am that of somebody like you that came from our same cloth that has led you know a charge for doctors that want to be in the type of practice scenario that you started with Clarkson uh, with your partner and uh, it's just awesome I guess the only thing I can ask other than the, all these business questions is is there any great things that give you joy in your personal life <laughs> yeah I mean obviously the kids you know my wife and I have uh, three great kids and uh, we're gonna we're gonna miss them when they go back to school but I think it, my wife's ready to let them go back to school, if you know what I mean. So it's it's been fun having them around, but it's it's you know they need to go back and be kids and college kids and experience what college is supposed to be. So we're uh, we're real proud of the kids for sure. Yeah. Well, again, it's super nice to reconnect, and I can't be thankful enough for your openness and your insights on a topic where a lot of doctors don't get a chance to talk to somebody who's been doing what you're doing. So continued success, and thank you for sharing all these thoughts. Great, Scott. Great to see you. And for the audience, thanks for attending and listening to Dr. Walker's thoughts. And until my next sandbox story, be great at all you do.